I would like to think that that's what 2024 is going to be like. <laughs> you know, like I'd like to think that we're turning the corner and turning the page into a bright, sunshiny year. How many of you are looking forward to 2024? I am. I'm looking forward to it. How many of you are afraid of it being the same old grind? It's okay. Anybody afraid? It's okay. That the, are there things you wish you would have left in 2023 you hope don't follow you into 2024? I know, I, do. I know for sure me. I, uh, I turned 40 this past year, like three weeks ago. I, you know, and I w I'm excited, or at least I told everybody I was excited. <laughs> if you talked to me and you knew my 40th was coming up, you would have probably heard me say something like, hey, you know, because it's a big number. You know, it's a, it's a middle life number here. And I just kept saying, I'm, I'm oh, you're, you're turning 40. I'm excited about it. And I really was until one of the things that happens when you're 40 just really grabbed me and took a hold of me and, and brought a new kind of pain in my life. And that was a, a lower back injury. <laughs> like, I kept saying how excited I was and what was going on. And then, and then I carried Christmas decorations downstairs. You know, like in a giant tote, and we just fill it to the brim, and it's heavy, and I took a step down and turned, and went, oh, that's new, you know? And it wasn't that, like, I, and I've, I've kind of had that kind of pain before. It wasn't like a super big deal. It's like, okay, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm turning 40 now. I'm going to take it gingerly and stuff. But then I had a neighbor call me, and uh, he says, hey, man, right now, can you come over like right now or maybe send like your eldest son, you know, who's just 12 turning 13. He's like, I've, I've got to get a couch out of my living room and into a truck. We've got to return it. And I thought, okay. I, you know, I had the two voices in the head like, I totally know I need to take it slow, but I can't come up with an excuse that doesn't make me sound like a wimp. You know, like, like I feel like this is just my neighbor. I'm not feeling too bad. I'm going to, I'll help him carry a couch, all right? And so I go over to his house. I walk, just right around the corner. I can see his house from my back window. Help him carry it in, and it was okay. It wasn't bad. And then he goes, hey, would you like to get this couch? We're trying to get rid of it. I'm giving it away. And I was like, yeah, I would actually. And so I was like, yes, let's carry this into my house. And we carried it. And you know what? There wasn't really even in that this, um, this, this, this like explosion of pain or anything. It was just, okay, it's a little tighter, a little tighter. So the, the Christmas decorations didn't do me in. The carrying uh, two couches didn't do me in. Do you know what it was that did me in that night? It was getting up to pee. <laughs> getting up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, and I like sat up and like threw my leg over and went, Oh, it, like I tried to be quiet because I didn't want my wife to wake up and like think, what is going on? What is, what's happening? But like I put my hand on the wall and I walk like, I mean like this, just like, like not even moving this leg, walk, go to the bathroom. And I start to go back to my bedroom like this. And I go, if I get back in bed, I'm not going to be able to get back up. <laughs> and I went and I got on the couch for the rest of the night. And that's how I spent like, the, the, the week after, you know, uh, I turned 40, and I said, man, I really thought I was going to get out of 2023 okay. You know, like, I really thought I was going to get into the new year okay and feel good about myself, and 2023 was just like, gotcha, and pulled me back in, and I had a back pain I had never felt before in my life. It was, and some, who's had that happen before? I, I had to call a friend. I literally called a friend who had the same thing that happened to him. He turned 40, and he was telling us a story. This, he turned 40 in November, and he said a week later, he was in his driveway, and he was holding something, twisted the wrong way, and it dropped him to his knees. 
and he stayed there for five minutes. And it was the same thing with me. I couldn't even stand up. I called him that morning. I was like, Paul, am I going to live? Like, yeah, you're going to live. You're going to live, buddy. You'll get through it. But like, it didn't feel that way. And it was just like, I didn't expect, I'd never had that experience before where it felt like I was just walking on this like razor's thin edge between like pain and relief. You know, we're like, if I just, I, I just had to, to feel some sense of peace, to feel not some sense of excruciating pain that was going to knock me over. Like, I just had to stay right here on this, this tightrope, right on this razor's edge between pain and relief. And I feel like what it taught me was that, unfortunately, I feel like we, we live life that way, too not just with our lower back, but just that idea of like how we structure our lives, how we're, we're super busy. Our, our schedules, aren't our schedules just like a house of cards? <laughs> you just need one thing to go wrong and, and you fall over into that kind of like chaos. It just takes so much energy sometimes to feel like you're living an actually full and satisfying, flourishing life. And it's like, I have to ask, are, are we, is it supposed to be that way? Is it supposed to take so much energy and so much attention and so much um, just force to live a flourishing, abundantly full life? Why does it have to be so hard? Why do I have to walk on this razor's edge of pain and peace? Now, I don't think it has to be that way, and neither did Jesus, and I think if you were to kind of take a verse with you into 2024 and, and really try to meditate on it and contemplate in it and think about um, the vision that God has for your life, the vision that Jesus has for your life, um, it would be hard to do better than what we find in John 10.10. 10. And so I want to read that right now. We're going to put it up there on the screens for you. John 10.10 10 says this. It's Jesus talking. And he says, my purpose is to give them, and he's talking about his followers, he's referring to them in sheep, and we're going to do a whole Sunday in February over Jesus as shepherd, as God as shepherd, so save that one. But my purpose is to give them, to give you a rich and satisfying life. That's what we think of around here as a flourishing life, to be filled to not always be limping along, to not live life as a series of sprints <laughs> where you're just trying to get to the sprint and then just catch your breath, to get a sprint and get something done and then catch your breath. That's not satisfying. That's not full. That's not abundant. That's not the life that we are designed to live. It's not what Jesus wants for you. And so we're doing this series called The Flourishing Life. And, and what we're trying to talk about over these next four weeks is what does it look like to adopt a way of life, to adopt a process, to, uh, to live um, with habits that help us feel full, abundantly full and overflowing in our hearts, our minds, our bodies, and our souls. Because I think there's, there's one thing I've noticed is like, if you think of your life as a bucket, you know, and that's the metaphor Jesus is using. Jesus is using that analogy or those words. It really means overflowing life. And if you think about a bucket, think about a bucket that you're pouring water in. Maybe you're watering some trees or shrubs and you're pouring it, you're filling it up, filling it, and it's overflowing. The truth about a bucket is, is it will only hold water up to its lowest leak, right? 
And so one of those domains of your life, your heart, your mind, your body, or your soul, which one of those is your lowest leak? Which is the one that is keeping you the most from living a full life? For me, I found out in the middle of the night when I had to go pee (laughs) that it was my lower back, my body, that I need to get in shape. That's exactly what my wife said was, I think 2023 and God is trying to tell you you need to take care of your physical health. And I even went so far, mind you, and I'm embarrassed to say it, but to rent a book from the library on yoga because my back is killing me. And I rented a book on yoga, and I have, I could, I could, if I wanted to, show you some forms here, but that's going to be for a different time and place today. But it's like I had to realize, my lowest leak, the hole in my bucket, is my physical health. I'm not doing what I should. And because I'm not living as I should, my life is not full as it could That's not what Jesus wants. And so for you to to zero in on this month, I would just highly suggest not to miss a Sunday this month. I think new habits, good habits, I think 2024 is, uh, and the way we start our year really does have an impact. I'm not saying you have to make like a New Year's resolution because that's not necessarily what does it for some people, but that idea of like, what would it be like to live these first 30 days, and we're on day seven now, so you got some catching up to do potentially. But what would it look like to live super intentionally at the beginning of this year? How would that affect the end of 2024 for you? Which is what I'm trying to think about in my own world. Like, how can I live super intentionally at the beginning of 2024 so that I don't end up on one knee (laughs) grabbing my back at the end of 2024? And I would, I, there, there, and there's not a series that we've done maybe that's had so much of a personal impact on, on my life as what we're going to be talking about this month. Now there's four principles to what we're calling the flourishing life, and I'm going to have them put them up there, and we're going to talk about them just for a brief second. We would say that having vision is absolutely essential for your life, knowing who you are and what you're called to do. Saying having self-awareness, understanding the processes that you need to put in place into your life, so that you can actually do something about it, creating habits that only comes from being aware of what you need to work on in your life. Having community, people who will walk with you. Because as much as you try to be self-aware of yourself, you're never gonna be able to be self-aware without a community that acts as a mirror and reflects you back to yourself and gives you an image of how you really appear to the world. And then the fourth principle of a flourishing life is this idea of movement. Choosing to act, choosing to move now, to make an actual plan. And so instead of spending four weeks trying to talk about the heart, the mind, the body, and soul, what we're saying is, is if you operate in those four ways, if you develop a vision for your life, you develop self-awareness, you find a community that'll speak truth to you and love, and you create movement by putting a plan into place, you're going to raise your lower leak. You're going to have more capacity. Your bucket of life is going to be fuller and more resemble the vision Jesus has for you. So today we're talking about vision, and when I talk about vision, I want to be very specific. I think it's really good to be specific. What I mean is, when I talk about vision, is seeing clearly who you are, your identity, and what you're supposed to do with your life, your purpose. 
who you are, who you know yourself to be, the way you're wired, your talents, your skills, your abilities, what makes you you, your personality, your character, your formation, and your purpose, how you use all of that that is you to make an impact in the world. And I would love it if we could do a little informal assessment here and think about this in terms of a flourishing score, okay? I want you to think about um, each of those as A. Let's say, let's say identity, who you are. Let's call that variable A. And let's call your purpose variable B, okay? So variable A is your identity. And I want you to think about a number between 1 and 10. How well do you know yourself? If you know yourself really, really well, you feel like you understand how you're wired. You understand um, how you operate in relationships. You understand your weaknesses. You understand your strengths. You understand and know and can name with clarity and detail the pieces and parts and moments of your life that have made you, you. If that's really high, go ahead and give yourself a 10. It's okay. If it's low, you can give yourself a one too. That's okay too. And now think about purpose. I want you to think about, okay, let's say you have a score, you have a number between one and 10 on identity, who you are and how well you know yourself. I want you to think about how well are you applying yourself to making an impact in this world. That may not be job necessarily. It could be a role you play. You think about mothering, fathering, um, just being a friend. But I want you to think about how well you're able to use what makes you you and apply it to making a difference in your world. I want you to give that a number two, okay? Between one and 10. Now what we can do with A and B is multiply them, right? So uh, let's, I don't have a, a, a multipliers chart up there. My wife does, she teaches fifth grade. They have their times tables on the walls. I don't have that here. So take that number and multiply it and you're gonna get a number between what? One in a hundred, right? Because <laughs> if, you're, if you're on the low end, and that's okay, we're glad you're here. That's a one, right? And if you're 10 times 10, you're a hundred. Now my guess is, in a room this size, it's gonna look like a bell curve probably, right? If we were to chart our numbers, right? There's probably a small percentage of people that are scoring an 85 or above, right? Like they're a nine times 10 on something, or a 10 times 10. And then there's another small part of our bell curve that feels like, man, I am, I am lost. I do not know what's going on. I do not know what's happening. I don't know who I am. I don't know how I'm supposed to use myself. And they would be on this end of the bell curve. But for most of us, we're probably gonna find ourselves somewhere in the middle. Now here's what I think, here's what I suspect, and here's what's alarming. The number that we have is probably much more based on our circumstances in life than how we really know ourselves or how we're really applying ourselves. My guess is, is that most of us have not done the work of really understanding who we are. And so that number that we feel about how well we're flourishing, it's much, much, much more unstable than it should be. Because it's much more based on whether things are just going well for you at the time <laughs> or going bad for you at the time. And y'all know how it only takes just a little push in one direction or the other, right? One bill to show up, one car to break down, one injury to happen and all of a sudden your number goes from a 75 to a 20, right? And so perhaps the scary thing is that, you know, if you have a positive number and you're feeling pretty good about yourself, the scary thing is that might be based much more on luck 
than anything else. Now, the encouraging thing is, too, is if you have a low number and you don't feel like perhaps you have a good sense of identity or purpose, there's a lot of growth that can happen if you're just intentional about it. And I, again, I promise you, is if you stick with this series, if you stick with this to the end of the month, if you apply the things we're going to talk about, I guarantee you that number's going to go up. I guarantee you're going to have a better understanding of who you are and, and how you're wired to operate and the impact you can make in this world, and that is absolutely going to fill your bucket more. You're going to see that number go up. See, one of the things we have to first understand about who we are and our identity is that we have design. You are designed. You are designed with intention. You are designed with intricacy. And you're designed with intimacy. If you want to think about like that, that if you're going to be here and you're exploring a spiritual journey, we intentionally make these Sundays much more about trying to invite the spiritual explorer instead of the already convinced believer. Because we know that as busy as we are in the general, the general population, we don't dig deeply into these spiritual things. But we know that at some point in your life, you're going to wonder, am I here on purpose? Is there intention in my life? Or is my life random? And I think if we don't create that time and space to look at our life, to learn our stories, we're going to be stuck with this idea that our lives are just random. All the crap that happens to me is just random. And that's going to influence what we think about God instead of learning and believing and buying into this idea that there is a designer. He designed me. He created me with intention. To also know that God didn't just design you with intention. He designed you with intricacy. There's not a detail that you that he's not aware of and doesn't have a plan for. And so especially those little things about yourself, the things that kind of fill you with self-contempt or the things that, that you wish were different, the things that you're wired, the ways you're wired that you don't really like. God created you with detail and he has a plan for that. Again, it goes back to that intention. I think maybe most importantly to think about it in the sense that God created you with intimacy, out of love, to be close to him. One of the things I think we struggle with in our relationship with God is just, we, I, think, I think we kind of come to God and we have a sense of his power. Like we get that, okay, if God's gonna be God, he's gonna be powerful. He's perhaps gonna make this world, but I don't know that we really grasp his personality. Or I think we get stuck in thinking about God as this powerful being, but we don't think of him as having a personality and being a personal being. See, Paul, in Ephesians 2.10, wants us to understand that God's not just a power, he's a personality. And he uses this word, poema, in this verse, Ephesians 2.10, to describe how God has made us. In Ephesians 2.10, the Apostle Paul writes, for we are God's masterpiece. And that word masterpiece, the Greek there, it means, it, it is literally poema. It's the same word that we get the word poem from. Okay, so think about it and let's read it like that. For we are God's poem. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Have you ever thought of yourself as God's poem? If you've not read poetry, probably not. Poetry is like a daunting thing, isn't it? Who reads poetry? Can I get anybody? Have you got any poetry readers in here? 
I see one. I see two. There's a couple of you. That's great. <laughs> I should have you come up here and explain this part. I've never really read poetry before, but there, there is a poet that I read sometimes. His, his name's Wendell Berry, and I read some of his poetry. And here's the thing that I notice about poetry. The personality of that writer is deeply imprinted on the words. The words come from the heart. They're not always exact. It's kind of messy. But there's great love in every single word and every single detail that's put into it. See, every master artist leaves its imprint on the work of art. You can recognize great works of art, right? by how they look. Like you can know what Van Gogh's artistry looks like. You can know what uh, Van Halen's artistry looks like. That would be Sean Hoflicker talking. <laughs> great artists have a certain sound. Great artists have a certain look. Great writers have a certain style that they write with. And so what we have to understand is that God is this great designer. We are his poema, we are his poem, and he has written his life into our life. So when the Bible talks about how we are made in God's image, we are made to reflect him, is that if we pay enough attention to our lives, no matter what moment's going on, no matter what we're going through, we will start to see God's story in our story. And it's through seeing God's story in our story that we become more able to see clearly who we are and what we're intended to do with our lives. One of the reasons that we don't see it very well is we pay way too much attention to the stories around us instead of the story that's going on in that. I tried to do some research on like social media usage and it's a lot. <laughs> like, like I couldn't find a single like uh, article, you know, I looked at like Pew Research Council and all these, you know, they were like, how much media do we consume a day? And like, I couldn't, to be honest with you, I couldn't believe it. Like, I literally, like, I can't even bring these statistics in here because it feels like, like, one study I saw said that uh, media consumption, the average American consumes, like, 12 to 13 hours of media per day. And, uh, yeah, I had the same look, too, because I'm thinking, how long am I even awake in a day? You know, like, I'm trying to subtract it, like, how much, how much time do I have to do life? And so then I was like, all right, I'm going to get rid of that overall story. I'm like, okay, well, how much video... How much video is consumed per day? And then uh, I was reading it and it was like six hours per day. It's like, that's still a lot of video. That's still a lot of time. But here's where I can start to believe it. I think it's easier to find meaning and stories living vicariously through somebody else's story than it is to do the work of finding meaning in our own story. I think all of us, we walk around feeling at least a little bit empty. You know, like I said, nobody's, nobody's bucket's completely full all the time, right? And you start to feel empty, don't you? And you start to feel drained, you start to feel tired, and you're just looking. You're just looking for something to fill you up. And in that moment, as you're looking to fill something up, it's just easy to pick up your phone, now that we all have them, and to start doom scrolling, and to start looking for a story that's going to give you some kind of jolt of dopamine or something to get you, to get you going, and to, to kind of lose yourself in, so you don't have to think about how empty you are. Or it's easy to stream media at night before bed, right? And just turn on a show. It's like, I feel empty. Or to put on video games, right? You know, it's like, got a couple of, uh, you know, of kids at home. It's like, what do they want to do with their time? And it's scary. You know, it's scary. 
to think about the amount of time we spend on screens, we spend consuming media. The only reason that we're consuming that much media, it's going to have to do with how proportionally empty we feel. It's because we don't feel like we have a story worth living in ourselves. And so we're looking to fill our lives with the stories of other people instead of getting in tune with the story God has written into us. I also think um, part of what's hard in understanding who we are and who we're really created to be is it's much easier to live a self-achieved identity instead of a God-received identity. It's much easier to be an achiever of identity than to be a receiver of identity. Meaning, I, I think we all know this, is like we're driven and created to find worth. Like we have to feel valued. We have to feel worthy. We have to feel loved. And from the very earliest of ages, we start to learn how to operate and we start to learn how to function, how to use our, our, our personalities or the gifts that we have to create this love interaction, to prove that we're worthy. I can remember um, being little, and I, I was a good reader, okay? I just read well. I liked to read. Reading was fun. Again, I liked to live vicariously through the stories. I liked to, to read um, Jurassic Park. I remember reading Jurassic Park in like third or fourth grade. It's just like getting caught and lost in a story really touched something deep inside of myself. And because I read well, I learned well. And so I scored well. And so all of a sudden I became a smart kid. And that became a label that I started to wear. And it didn't just become a label, did it? It became a way to feel worthy. It became a way to create achievement. And every time I got another score, every time I got another praise, every time I got another pat on the back, it touched that sense and that need of needing worth. And so I started to achieve my identity out of my own effort and out of my own works instead of receiving my identity from a God who loves me no matter if I achieve or not. What was it for you? What is it for you? you've probably figured out how to use your gifts and abilities to create some sense of achievement in the world. You've figured out how to use your talents, to use your brains, to use your brawn, to use your financial acumen, to use your relational intelligence to manipulate the word, world and manipulate people. And you manipulate others to give yourself the love and respect and worth you feel you need. And so you wear a label, maybe it's blue collar, maybe it's white collar, maybe it's suburban, maybe it's rural, maybe it's urban, but you've learned to kind of play the character in a story that's really not the most you, that isn't really who God says you should be. It's just easier. It's just easier to play a character in somebody else's story than doing the work of knowing who you really are and who God made you to be. My guess is, is there's probably eight to 10 moments in your life that define who you are. Eight to 10 moments, we'll call them hinge moments, okay? Hinge moments, moments that the trajectory of your entire life hinges on. Where you experienced something, maybe it was triumph, maybe it was tragedy but you experienced something that changed the trajectory and course of your life. A couple of mine. 
I grew up um, also playing sports, and that's what I thought I really wanted to be. That's how I achieved recognition. Again, you take what you were given and you manipulate others, you manipulate your world, mostly to achieve recognition. And so I could achieve recognition through sports, and so I wanted to play football, and so I walked on at a small college um, around here, and uh, I hated it. It was the most backwards experience and one of the most backward experiences in my entire life. I grew up in a small town and I really enjoyed sports. Um, I grew up with these kids since I was in kindergarten and first grade and we had such a camaraderie. Like sports meant team to me and I felt so good about it and it felt so great to be included and I loved it. And so I thought, sure, that's how it's gonna be at the next level. And so I walked on and I got there and I hated it because I was a big fish from a small pond and I couldn't compete at the next level and so therefore I wasn't getting the recognition that I had always gotten in my life. And it came to the point that next year, um, that next spring, during spring, and I wanted to quit. I had talked about quitting but I, and, and wanted to quit. Just, I was just like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. But um, through the counsel of some friends, I kept going and I found a way to keep pushing. But I can remember that moment, that very specific moment, where um, it's at the end of spring ball and the coach calls you up to his office to talk about his plans for you and the team the next year. And so I walk up into the office of the head coach and I sit down with him at the table and I can remember that coach telling me, you know, Justin, you've done everything we've asked. You show up, you work, you play, you've done everything we asked, but I don't know if I have a spot for you next year. I definitely am not going to have a scholarship for you next year and I'm not going to invite you back to our camp you know, kind of like the preseason camp where all of the team camaraderie is built, right? He goes, you can walk on again next year if you want, but that's just the way it is. And I looked at that man in the eye and I shook his hand and I said, thank you, but I'm okay. I'll be okay not being a part of the team. And I felt such incredible freedom. <laughs> I didn't realize how free I would be to let go of that identity of having to be a sports player of having to, to get recognition. It was such a weight off of my chest to realize I don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> this isn't the story I have to live. And to not identify as that, it freed me to have a spiritual journey and God did so many wonderful things, it was incredible. Another moment, another hinge moment in my life, saying I love you to my wife for the first time when we were dating. I had major anxiety pursuing my wife. I am, not, <laughs> I am somebody who likes everything controlled and relationships, um, they are messy, aren't they? And I just wanted to make sure everything was gonna be okay and I was, all, I was hot and cold and off again, da da da. And I remember my wife calling and telling me, just saying like, I just kinda need to know if you're gonna be here, you're like, like you're in this or not. Which was valid, like absolutely valid. And I can remember just feeling this kind of, I don't know, I look at it now and I think about it as God's finger on my soul, him writing himself into my story. And I just remember hearing this thought in my own head that I needed to drive to her. She was up at Maryville and I was here in Kansas City and so I got done teaching that day and I just decided I would drive to Maryville. And I didn't even know whether or not I was going to uh, break and end the relationship or tell her I love her. I knew it was gonna be one of those things like, I knew there wasn't, there was like, it was like, we're either, we're going all in or we're going, like, it's time. Like, you know what I mean? You got to, you know, crap or get off the pot, right? You're either all in or you're not. <laughs> and that was the kind of moment I had driving up to Maryville. And I'll, and I'll always remember that. I, 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 this will sound stupid, 
But I kept my left foot on my accelerator because I was so afraid I would uh, hit the brakes and turn around. Because I just didn't know if I had it in me. I just didn't know if I had it in me to actually do a lifelong relationship. I was so scared. But I know God showed up and I know I remember, you know, a hinge moment, right? This is what we're talking about. These hinge moments, these moments that you remember with great clarity, great detail, great intention about God's finger on your life. And I can remember looking up at the stars that night at Mazingo Lake and thinking, I don't think God wants me to, to live without her in my life. So I'm going to do it. And I remember telling her, I love her, and I'm sorry for all the crap I was putting her through. <laughs> and we're good. <laughs> you know, and that was, that was huge. That was huge for me. What hinge moments do you have? There are moments. There's probably, you know, eight to ten that your life really hangs on. Have you done the work to interpret them? Have you done the work to figure out how those moments, how those parts of your story fit in God's bigger story? Because that's where the real clarity comes from. If you're talking about having a vision for your life, who you are and what you're supposed to do, it's not just about understanding the hinge moment parts of your life, the critical moments. It's how do those critical moments fit into God's bigger story? And how does God's bigger story interpret those littler stories, those personal stories? And Paul, in that verse about the masterpiece, about being God's poema, that's kind of the end of that section. That's kind of like the fairy tale ending. If you can think about being God's poema, if you can think about being God's masterpiece, is kind of the fairy tale where we want to end up. It's, it's the good ending. There's a whole story leading up there right? Because masterpieces don't happen overnight, do they? Like, you, you just can't go create a masterpiece. You have to serious, um, experience serious ups and downs, ex- experience serious trial and error. You don't get good at something overnight, do you? And your life isn't going to be roses the whole time, is it? There's serious ups and downs, and Paul talks about that um, in the first part of the section before he gets to the masterpiece fairy tale ending part of the section. And so I'm going to put that up there right now, and I want to read this to you. It's Ephesians 2, the same chapter, the same section, under the same heading, but it says this. It's uh, 2, 1 through 6. Paul says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commanders of the powers of the unseen world. Go ahead and leave it up there, but I just want to stop. That's a little harsh, it seems like at first, like that idea of, okay, you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Do you feel a little guilt? You don't have to raise your hands, but like that can bring some shame, right? Oh, we're talking about that whole sin topic again. Oh gosh, I've seen too many churches, too many pastors, too many people tell me I'm a sin. You know, like that's kind of the narrative, right? I want to release you a little bit from that shame that comes with that word sin and kind of frame it a little differently. The word sin means to miss the mark. It means not living up to your own design. And if you can embrace the word sin... I think you'll actually find a lot of freedom in your life because sin makes a lot of sense of the world. If I can strip away all of like the false, you know, beating over the heads of the Bible that so many people have lived through and experienced and all the church hurt people have experienced and just look at sin as a word meaning I've missed the mark of my design. God designed me to live in a certain way and I miss that. Sin actually becomes a really freeing word because now I have a reason for why, uh, why I'm so self-centered. <laughs> now I have a reason that actually makes sense on why the world is so messed up. If you're afraid of the word sin, don't be. 
it actually makes a lot of sense of the world if you start to understand it. And especially like how Paul describes it here. He says, we've all been dead, uh, you know, cut off from people. We've been cut off from spiritual life because of our many sins. We've all lived in sin at some point, just like the rest of the world obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. It kind of makes sense that there's a personal evil acting in the world. (laughs) It kind of makes sense that there's such a thing as sin in the world, that there's unseen powers driving people to do really evil things. I think that makes sense. And he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey. And when we talk about refuse to obey, what we're really talking about is refuse to live according to design. It's like when I take, um, I take the nearest stapler that I can grab and use it as a hammer in my house, right? Like the stapler is not designed to be a hammer, but I can use it as such. And it can kind of get the same results, but I'm most, more, just as likely to damage the stapler itself as I am to actually accomplish the job. That's what disobedience is. It's living according to our own design, not God's design. And all of us have lived that way, following our desires, our passionate desires, and the inclination of our sinful nature, our self-centeredness. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And that's that whole receiving identity versus achieving identity. This is where Paul really wants you to understand that you cannot achieve your status before God. You can only receive your status before God. Is that we all fall short. We all have sin. So we fall short of our design, and it's only by his grace, his love, his rich storehouses of mercy that we can accept that, that we can accept that we have sin and that we need help. And he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him at the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. This is God's bigger story. The bigger story is that God, through Jesus, is trying to bring life from death. If I could sum up what God's trying to do, he's always trying to bring life from death. And so if you can take your hinge moments and you can filter it or cross-reference it to that, God's story, that no matter what it was that happened to you, no matter what it was that you went through, God's purpose, his intention, is that he would use that moment to bring life out of death. And if you can start to embed that deep in your soul, that God is using your critical moments to shape you and to bring life from death, you're gonna start to flourish. And your flourishing score, your flourishing number, it's not gonna be so dependent on your circumstances. It's gonna be dependent on your God. That's a different way to live. There's one more thing I think we have to understand about vision, and that's the purpose part of it. It's not just understanding who you are and your story, You've got to take that and cross-reference it with God's story. You've got to ask yourself, how is God trying to bring life from death in this situation? But then you have to, you have to point it at God's purposes, not your own. And I'm going to put Ephesians 2.10 back up there, but I'm going to highlight, I'm going to underline two words. And they're two really important words. So this is what we just looked at a little bit ago. Uh, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. That's a really hard point for us. We don't want to give authority of our lives over to somebody else. Again, we want our lives to feel the way we want them to feel like, and we think we know the best way to get those results. 
what Paul's trying to tell us and why we underline that is that idea of like, it's through living for God's purposes, it's through trying to aim at his targets, not trying to fulfill our own, that we bring the most life into the world. My wife and I recently watched the movie Oppenheimer. Has anybody seen Oppenheimer? Can I see who saw Oppenheimer just so I can see what I'm working with here? Okay, crazy movie, right? Intense, right? Like this movie, Oppenheimer, what it is, it's the life of um, J. Robert Oppenheimer. I got that right, isn't it? Not Robert J., J. Robert Oppenheimer. He led the Manhattan Project. He was in charge of gathering the best minds of that time to harness the power of nuclear energy. So that, what? You could create nuclear bombs and nuclear weapons. And it's a crazy movie. And one of the thoughts I had while watching this movie is these are the brightest minds of their time. If I were to cross-reference it to some of the scripture today, I'd think about it like this. I'd say like, these guys are the, and, and women too, are the ultimate masterpieces. Like of, of their identities, right? Like they know themselves. They know their gifts. They, like they are the pinnacle of, of their form of creation. They are literally splitting atoms. They are doing things no one has ever thought of before. But to what purpose, to what purpose are they using their gifts? To what purpose are they using their talents? They knew their talents very well. But did that create life or did that take life? And if you uh, look and you research some of the notes and you pay attention to the, the deeper parts of the story, they struggled with that. The scientists, the people on the Manhattan Project, they really struggled with what they were doing. I want to put up here a note from Oppenheimer's um, trial, disposition. He got his security clearance revoked from him um, in 1954, and this is a very pivotal part in the movie. I won't give away any secrets, but this is a note from Oppenheimer, 1954, as he was on trial um, about trying to get his security clearance renewed. The person cross-examining him is Q, and he is A. Um, his his cross-examination guy said, uh, you know, did you not that the dropping of that atomic bomb on the target you had selected will kill or injure thousands of civilians? Is that correct? Not as many as turned out. How many were killed or injured? 70,000. Did you have moral scruples about that? Terrible ones. It, it turns out the scientists had no idea how good they were at creating a bomb. <laughs> Oppenheimer thought that they would kill about 20,000 people. It ended up being somewhere between 110 and 220,000 people. And at the time, he kept telling himself, I'm just doing my job, I'm just doing my job, I'm just doing what I need to do. But at the same time, he wrestled with, am I using my gifts to create life or to take it? I want to put up one last scripture here. Go ahead. Mark 8. 31 through 37, Jesus began to tell his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he, looked, as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and then reprimanded Peter. He said, get away from me, Satan, to his closest disciple. Get away from me, Satan. You are what? You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. 
And then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose your life. But if you give up your life for my sake and the sake of the good news, you will save it. This is recorded in three out of the four gospels that we have of Jesus because it was one of, if not the underlying principle that he wanted to communicate to his followers is that we, we don't fill our lives by trying to fill our own lives. We flourish when we live for others and not ourselves. That's how we're created. That's how we're designed. God designed us to be creative forces in the world, not anti-creative. And so when we own that, when we accept that, when we accept that that's God's fingerprint on our soul to create life, not take it, those are the moments that fill us up the most. One of the most meaningful parts of my Christmas um, had to do with my, my wife's grandmother, Judy. The Judester, as I like to call her, and I call her that to her face. I say, Judester, how you doing today? Judy's 85 years old, and she is in Westbrook Living Facility up in Kearney. It's an assisted living facility. Um, she, she has to live there because um, four, five, six years ago, she fell and, her, and she was in her bathroom for many hours, almost a whole day, and part of her nerves died in her foot. And so she can't, she can't really walk very well. She can, but she needs a walker. She can't drive. So her mind's all intact. Her relationships are all intact, but, but um, she can't take herself out. And so um, because we live closest, often we're the ones that go pick her up. And so we pick her up from Westbrook, we pick her up from Kearney, and 92's closed a lot of the time, so when we gotta go to Platte City, we gotta come all, go from Kearney all the way back down to Liberty and on up to Platte City. That's how it is, all right? And so we pick up Judy and we do that, and we do our whole Christmas day, we, have a, it's a, we do a whole Christmas, we're over at my in-law's house, um, you know, we're tired, we're worn out, our kids strung out on sugar cookies, you know, we spent six, seven hours, like, doing the Christmas thing, right? And we're driving back, it's dark, and we're coming back, and we're coming back off of like 291 and Stark Road. And earlier in the Christmas holiday season, I had taken my family to a new subdivision that I was unaware of that had amazing Christmas lights. And it was beautiful. It's 104th. It's right across from uh, where Liberty North High School is. If you take 104th back next year, obviously, put it on your calendars, you can go back and see these amazing Christmas lights displays. And so we're coming back. And again, that same nudge that I felt that told me I need to go tell my wife I love her said, you need to take Judy through these Christmas lights. Because I knew she was just going to go back to the assisted living facility, and that was going to be it for her. And I thought, man, I can take five more minutes. <laughs> I can take five more minutes out of my day. And so we took a little detour and we drove Drudy through the Christmas light village of houses and we played Kenny Rogers Christmas because <laughs> she loves Kenny Rogers Christmas album. <laughs> so we played Kenny Rogers Christmas and we went through these Christmas lights in this neighborhood. And as we left and we got back on the interstate, you know what Judy said? She says, that was fun. And that was the highlight of my Christmas. Wasn't getting my kiddos a switch or getting my kids this or that. You know what I mean? I even won 50 bucks from a scratcher. <laughs> Never had that happen before. It was hearing Judy say, that was fun. And that's a moment I know I can hang my hat on to say, you know what? It's not about me in this moment. It's about creating life for her. And that felt so full. And that's exactly how you are designed to live too not trying to hang on to your own life, not trying to hang on to your own agenda, but living for God's purposes in this world. That's when you're gonna feel most full. That's when you're going to flourish.
Would you guys pray with me, please? Father, we're getting uh, off to a start here in 2024, and a new year brings so many possibilities. And, and we know that um, Satan, the world, all these uh, forces are going to try and stop us from living a flourishing life. And so we pray that you would help us focus, focus on what we want to be different. Speak to us. Let us hear it. Let us hear some words. Let us hear some thoughts that come from you. What is it that we want to be different in 2024? Somehow, some way, um, get it deep into inside of our soul that we have a choice. Our lives are not random. They have design, and we have a choice of whether or not we're going to participate in your causes, that we're going to operate according to your kingdom, not ourselves. So please, Father, give us eyes, give us ears, give us hands, give us feet, give us words to aim at your targets instead of always aiming at our own. 